This is a strange little passage, isn't it? Um, the end of it is so odd, and it comes out of nowhere. It's almost like a fever dream. What do you make of it? Having prepared for the sermon and chewed on it for a while, I just think it's wonderful. And my hope for this morning is that we end up seeing that clearly and that we marvel at the God who invites the world to his table. So my aim is that we'll be moved to worship, which means I should pray before we get going. Let's do that. Father God, please put your spirit at work in our hearts this morning. Teach us from your word. Grant me the right words to say and direct our hearts towards you and to your son, Jesus. Spur our hearts to worship you and to glorify your name. Amen. So what's happening here then? Um, remember that over the last few weeks, Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai. The Lord has manifested up on the mountain in a cloud of thunder and lightning. And people have been warned not to come close. He's just too mighty. He's too holy for them to come near. But they have already in Exodus 19 committed to obeying everything that the Lord tells them. And in Exodus 20, they're given the Ten Commandments and they're left terrified by their God. And then as we saw last week, in 21 to 23, the law is expanded for them and applied to everyday life. And they're given guarantees, the promise that God will guard them and go ahead of them into the promised land. And so now here in the first half of chapter 24, they're in a position to repeat their commitment to his covenant. This time with a better understanding of what they're getting into. A better understanding of God's graceful presence and protection. And so in verse one, God calls them up the mountain. Moses, Aaron, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and elders representing each of the tribes are to come and worship. And when Moses goes and tells God's word to the people, they repeat their covenant commitment. We get it in verse three and verse seven more formally. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Let's look at that commitment together. And I, I want to make three brief points about it. Firstly, it's a firm commitment. They're repeating their words from Exodus 19, but this time as a settled, firm decision. They've had time to think it over. They know more about what it is. And, and so in verse four, overnight, Moses writes down everything that God said to him. And it's become a sort of written contract almost, a treaty. It's binding and lasting. And then in verse five, early in the morning, as they're getting ready, they build a rock altar, a tangible, concrete sign of a permanent decision from them and of God's permanent promise to them. And although the bulk of the people aren't going to approach the mountain, they do set up these 12 stone pillars around the altar. And it's a physical representation that in God's sight, at least, the 12 tribes have been firmly gathered to him. 
And actually, it goes a bit further than that. 70 elders have been selected to represent the people. And that's got to be a deliberate callback to Genesis. Um, way back in Genesis 10, after the flood, we're given this long list of 70 nations that descend from Noah. It's called the Table of Nations. It represents the whole world. And then Genesis 46, verse 8 to 27, we get this list of all the male Israelites that went to live in Egypt. And again, with some wrangling, that's 70 people. A figurative way of saying that the whole of mankind, in some sense, is represented with them as they go into Egypt. And then here again in Exodus, as 70 elders are called up the mountain, I think we're to remember and see. Figuratively, this represents something for all mankind. Just as in the promise to Abraham, all the world will be blessed by this covenant. It's not just for them. There is something big happening here as they make this firm commitment. A firm commitment. Um, Secondly, they make a commitment that's paid for by sacrifice. Do you see that? They don't just toddle up the mountain on their own. God's holiness and justice are too important for that. So in verses 5 to 8, blood is splashed on the altar first. God's justice has to be satisfied. And then blood is sprinkled on the people. As the Lord's words are read out and as they commit themselves to obedience. It's only with a sacrifice that they can approach him. That has to happen before they can commit to obedience. So it's not that they obey and so gain God's covenant. It's the other way around. Because the sacrifice is made, because of the covenant, they can hope to obey him. They've made a firm commitment, paid for by sacrifice. And now this is where it gets exciting. It's a commitment welcomed by God. Look at verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. And the reader's jaw drops. Because that shouldn't be possible. Remember, a few weeks ago, this mountain was on fire with his presence. In chapters 19 and 20, anyone who stepped on it, even an animal, was to be put to death. Think much later on, Isaiah 6 verse 5. Isaiah has a vision of God. And what does he say? Woe to me, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah is only seeing God at a distance, high up and exalted on a throne. It's not safe for people like this to encounter a God like that. A God who is holy and good where they are not. A God who is righteous and mighty like a purifying flame. They should be burnt to a cinder. Think of what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
They're carrying the ark towards Jerusalem. Uzzah is worried that it's going to fall to the ground. So he reaches out and touches the ark to steady it. He thinks his hand is cleaner than the ground. And he dies on the spot. That's just for touching a wooden box. This shouldn't be possible. Now, it's not face to face. It's not close up. Even Moses doesn't get that in Exodus 33, but it's still jaw dropping. And yet even more, they're not just seeing God in the distance. They're being welcomed right into his throne room in verse 10. And the whole world along with them. Do you see, below him is a floor of lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a beautiful blue stone flecked with gold-coloured minerals. It's like the, the sky with the sun or stars shining in it. In Ezekiel chapter 1, that prophet also sees God on a throne of lapis lazuli. It's often translated as sapphire later in the Bible. We find it as one of the foundation stones of Zion in the Psalms, in Revelation. It's as if the floor beneath him is the sky of the world. He's the king over the heavens. And yes, he's up there on his throne, but he's receiving them there in the room with him. Amazing. And then if your jaw can drop any further, Maybe your chin hits the floor at this stage. Verse 11. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Not only did they see God. Not only are they invited into his halls, but they sit down and eat and drink in his presence. I wonder if the Israelite readers here would have in mind the end of Genesis. In Genesis 43, um, the ruler, Joseph, receives his brothers in his governor's residence, his alienated brothers, and he eats with them, and the family is reunited. Here on the mountain, family reunited. They eat and drink in God's presence. It may be the eating of the sacrifice completing the ritual that marks them clean, feeding on that sacrifice, being nourished by it. At the same time, it may be a meal together, sealing the contract, completing the treaty they've made with this king, sealing his covenant with them. And yet at the same time, he's also showing them hospitality, feeding them now in his home, Before, he sustained them on the journey with manna and quail and water. But now he's taking all the responsibilities of a host towards them. It's no small thing. Wouldn't it have been jaw-dropping? Could they even believe it was happening? Could they believe their eyes, their taste buds? Now for us... This is a weird passage, isn't it? And maybe it doesn't hit home for us straight away. We don't see just how amazing this is. But it links to so many places in scripture. So think about the promise that's being made here. 
Think about how it resonates and echoes forwards through salvation history. There will be more things we could point out than I've noticed or got time for. But here are three. Marvel at this. His hand is not raised against them. They are at peace with their host and his justice and holiness are satisfied. Now in Exodus, it is not yet at all clear how that could have happened. They have to know that a few animal sacrifices are not going to be enough to pave the way for them into the presence of a God who is a consuming fire. And in fact, long term, not one of these men will survive to reach the promised land. Even Moses will only see it from a distance. Each of them is already compromised. They will each be shown in the future to be guilty of disobedience and law-breaking. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, are mentioned here by name. And, and before long, they will disdain God's ceremonial law and they will be destroyed for it in Leviticus 10. And yet, the covenant promise and invitation persists and are later fulfilled and confirmed and renewed in Christ. God doesn't show this to them just to snatch it away when they're naughty. That's not in his nature. He shows this to an unreliable, disobedient people as a foretaste and guarantee of his covenant faithfulness, which will win out. Even after all their flighty faithlessness. Remember, it's not that they obey and so gain God's covenant. It's the other way round. The sacrifice has been made. Isn't that amazing? They get to see that somehow a way is opened up for them to come into the very presence of God. A greater sacrifice that's dealt with the problem of their hearts. And we know that happens at the cross centuries later. As the blood of God's own lamb is splashed on a wooden altar. And he sprinkles the nations with that better sacrifice. They're at peace with their host. Marvel at that. Well, marvel at this. This encounter is not just for them. So the young men of Israel make the sacrifices in verse 5 while their fathers seal the covenant. This is something to be inherited from generation to generation. But beyond that, we have the 70 elders going up the mountain and symbolizing with them every tribe and nation. So we, even here in this far-flung corner of the earth, are included right back then in this covenant offer. Like branches grafted into the tree of Israel. We get a place in this promise and this meal. And so Psalm 67, we can sing, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. I, I think this consistency is amazing. Think long and hard on it. Re read the Bible deeply and widely and, and see such interlinking between different parts of Scripture. So much foreshadowing of greater promises to come and so many echoes of the wonders of God's love in the past. 
plenty of novelists struggle to mimic that sort of consistency. But, but this is recorded by a host of different hands over centuries. Isn't it amazing to see that richness of the Bible? Isn't it wonderful for us to see here that we're not an afterthought tacked on later in the New Testament? We're part of God's plan from the start. And isn't it good then to realise that in just the same way, this is not a promise just for us, but for generations to come. And for those around us as well who don't yet know it. So marvel at the generous heart of a God who even now is reaching out to our communities and to your neighbours and families and friends with an invitation to draw near and be welcomed like this. Praise that God and ask him to train our hearts to share that love and to reach out to those around us. Or finally, friends, marvel at this. Jaw-dropping though this passage is, it's only a foretaste. So ask yourself, who do they see up there on the mountain? John's Gospel tells us in chapter 1 that no one has seen the Father except Christ alone, in whom the Father has chosen to make himself known to us. I think this is an Old Testament glimpse of Jesus. Just a glimpse still. A glimpse of the one who will one day invite his followers to share a better meal than this. The manna in the desert, the water from the stone, those were just foretastes, appetizers. He's the bread of heaven, broken for us at the cross. He gives his followers living water that they'd never be thirsty again. His blood is the better sacrifice poured out like wine for his followers to gladden their hearts and to wash us clean. So when we meet and share communion together, which we'll do a little bit later, we're joining in a better banquet even than these elders of Israel. We remember a covenant sealed by Jesus. At his cross and resurrection, he defeated death. He paid the penalty for sin on our behalf. And as he pours out his spirit on his people, he renews and mends hearts and turns our eyes towards his father's throne. And when we get to share communion, we're reminding ourselves with absolute confidence of that and that he will return and call his people to the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 21, where every tribe and tongue and nation is welcomed in, and where he says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life, and where he says that the fruit of the tree of life will be our food. Marvel at what we see the God who invites the world to his table. Let's pray. Father God, would you please move our hearts to wonder and awe and worship as we feast on your word. Please amaze us with the richness of what we find and by your spirit, teach our hearts of your goodness. 
Help us to disciple ourselves to you, the God who welcomes frail and weak sinners like me to his banquet. How great is your mercy and grace, Lord. How far-reaching is your sovereign rule and how generous is your provision. As we see all of this and meditate on the covenant you've chosen to make with us in your son, please help us to commit our hearts to faithful obedience. And as you feed us and welcome us in, please transform us by his sacrifice to be pleasing in your sight, dressed for that banquet in his righteousness. Amen.